Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is fiction writer Jason Brown, associate professor of creative writing at the University of Oregon. Brown is the author of three short story collections, Driving the Heart and Other Stories, Why the Devil Chose New England for His Work Stories, and a faithful but melancholy account of several barbarities lately committed a novel in stories. Brown's work has appeared in Prairie Schooner, South East Review, Harper's Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Indiana Review, and the American Literary, among others. Thanks, Jason, for coming on the show. It's great to have you back. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's start with uh, the obligatory, how did you become a writer question? Um, I, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I. <laughs> I shouldn't have uh, probably become a writer, <laughs> is what I say to most people. But uh, because uh, I I grew up in Maine in a in a small town, and I uh, I was dyslexic, and um, they didn't really know what that meant um, in rural Maine when I was growing up, uh, and so they are by they I mean. The school system, my teachers, uh, eventually, I think my parents as well, thought I was just uh, slow um, uh, or just not too sharp. And I, uh, so I started reading late. Um, I read slowly. Um, so I'm not exactly sure um, why. I mean, I did a reading recently with uh, Jonathan Franzen, and he, uh, someone asked him a similar question, and. Uh, he basically said, well, people tend to do what they're good at. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that's the case with me. Um, however, uh, I, I, uh, I uh, story uh, in, in various forms um, gripped me uh, very early on. And uh, I, I began to read uh, um, really because of my grandfather and who was an English teacher and because of uh, a few teachers that I had in, in Maine who gave me books that were not on the curriculum very early on. A junior high teacher gave me uh, Catcher in the Rye, Brave New World, and a few other books that I, uh, I were not on the curriculum. Um, and I became sort of obsessed with those books. And, and it sort of opened up a door in my head that, uh, and I started writing stories when I was and keeping a journal when I was 11 or 12 years old. So your publications thus far have been short stories. So tell us what's appealing to you about th that form. You know, uh, different writers, I mean, writers are different people. Um, um, so for me, the short story form, what I like to say is that it chose me. Um, I didn't really choose it. And uh, so the almost obligatory uh, career path involves writing a, it used to involve writing a, a collection of stories, which would be your honest work. And then they'd expect you to sort of, a, I mean, by they, I mean, the publishing industry would expect you to abandon the short story. Um, if not completely, at least as uh, anything that was going to advance your career, and turn uh, quickly to uh, novel writing. And um, so I tried to do that, and 
and uh, it didn't work out for me. I uh, I tried I've tried to write several novels, um, and uh, it, it never worked out for me for various reasons. My brain does not really function um, in that way. Um, it functions within the base of the the short story, and and so you know I. I, uh, you know, at some point decided just to commit career suicide and continue writing short stories. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's proven to be uh, not not entirely true. Uh, I've done as well as could be expected. But um, it, with very few sort of exceptions, um, New York publishing has abandoned uh, publishing uh, short story collections, except maybe as an author's first book. Um, otherwise, they they've become increasingly commercial. And, and so short story collections have moved over sort of into the realm professionally of uh, poetry collections um, with a more of a niche audience and, uh, and specialized publishers who are devoted to the forum. Now, so I, I just say, you know, I, that I chose it rather than, um, you know, I, I say that it chose me rather than um, my choosing it. Um, because, uh, you know, because I've tried other forms and uh, with the exception of nonfiction, I've just found that my imagination only works really in this form. And, uh, and that's true for me. And it's true for some famous short stories, writers like Alice Monroe and Raymond Carver, um, uh, among others. But for many people uh, are able to write in, in both genres or both forms, I mean, and, uh, they have no trouble with that. Um, so it's just as everyone's different, you know. So this volume, the most recent volume, is a collection of linked stories. So tell us what's appealing to you about that particular way of organizing short stories. Well, one of the things that uh, one of the things that you know I found oppressive about. Uh, the last time I was working on a novel um, was what I call the tyranny of plot. And, you know, the, the modernist novel is, I mean, existed for a short period of time and is more or less not published anymore, <laughs> not in a significant way. And so over the last 20 years, uh, you know, you've seen the novel move in, in different directions. Um, and it's become more and more like movies. They they expect uh, a heavily plotted novel. They're not as interested in language or um, or character. And so, um, at the same time, you know, as I was you know laboring under that sort of trying to make that form work for me because uh, for professional reasons, really, um, I was also frustrated with the their. Um, story collection um, that people often put out as first books and, and um, because they the, the stories in, in many cases and this is true of my first collection which is thematically linked but not linked in any other way um, a lot of story collections began to that I was reading began to feel like they didn't really hold together as a book that they were just uh, a compilation of the best the writer could do over a certain period of time um, and, and then I began to return to certain linked collections that had been very important for me over the years. Um, 
Love Medicine by Louise Erdrich is, is at the top of the list. Um, that's an early book of hers, and I think it's her best. And um, it's a it's a it's a novel in stories, and it doesn't labor under what I call the tyranny of plot. Um, in other words, each story has the freedom to explore its own territory, but together as a compilation uh, or as a collection, um, the the collection as a whole is much larger and creates a larger world. Um, you know, than any of the individual stories can do on their own. And I just began to feel that this is, this is the real form. This is the true form where interesting work is happening right now. And, and in some ways has been happening. Um, and I started to read more of those kinds of books and I, I stopped being interested in reading novels. Um, not all novels, but <laughs> that, that, you know, uh, became my primary interest. And because they could function and do all the things that I liked about the novels that I loved, but they had more freedom, um, more freedom to what I call wander away um, from the plot line, uh, explore back eddies, uh, you know, do things that uh, novels today, at least, are, con are conventionally not even allowed to do. Um, and so that's that's why I was attracted to the forum. Uh, Louise Erdrich's uh, Love Medicine is is definitely one of the best in the 20th century, best examples in the 20th century, I think, um, for me. Uh, but, you know, other famous examples, uh, you know, are Dubliners, um, Winesburg, Ohio. Um, uh, you know, there, there are many, many examples. So let's talk about Jason Brown's A Faithful But Melancholy Account of Several Barbarities Lately Committed. And let's start with that title. Um, you, you say you're somebody who has an affection for career suicide. What did the publishers think when you proposed that title? Well, this is not a major New York publisher. So they were, uh, they published books to, to make art, not make money. And so they were more open to it, even though, even so they had a, uh, they had a publicist uh, who was a New York person, professional person. And she said, uh, you know, what are you thinking? You can't call the book this. <laughs> and I said, you know, I said, no one's going to buy the book anyway. So let's just call it whatever we want. <laughs> so, so tell us about that and, title. Uh, but, What's the source of the title? Uh, it's from a uh, Cotton Mather, uh, you know, sermon um, during the time of Queen Anne's War. And the longer part of the title refers to, you know, a faithful but melancholy account of several barbarities lately committed against, and I can't quote exactly, but something like Her Majesty's, uh, you know, subjects, you know. And so essentially, it's a, it's a Cotton, Cotton Mather was a Puritan minister in the early 1700s and late 1600s, I think. He was involved in the Salem witch trials. Um, you know, he's one of the most prolific uh, Puritan voices at that time and essentially this pamphlet that i quote from refers to the horrible things that the uh native people of new england and their french allies were doing to the poor english souls who had taken their land <laughs> and i laugh because you know the irony is is there and for me and so you know it's a signal in a way that um this is uh i'm writing about the family in this book um a descend they're they're the Howland family. They descend from John Howland, um, who was a on the Mayflower. He was a servant uh, 
of one of the wealthier people. And um, he's my personal ancestor as well. And, and, um, and the, the, the way their consciousness sort of has evolved from that time uh, when they came over to where they are now, late 20th century, century, early 21st century. And, and in the background of that, you know, I'm, I, I, I try to point out at several points is, is all this history, which involves, of course, the genocide of the Native Americans. In the part of Maine that I grew up in, um, there was very little uh, visible history of, of Native, uh, Native life or, um, or Native, Native history or culture at all, Central Coast, Maine, because in, in part, I think uh, they had been almost completely wiped out by, uh, by the early English and uh, Irish and Scottish settlers. So would you mind reading a bit from the title story of the volume? Absolutely, love to. <clears throat> a faithful but melancholy account of several barbarities lately committed. The day before my sister's pretend wedding, the family gathered in Maine for our annual meeting at my grandfather's island house so he could tell us how much of a disappointment we'd been. Dressed like a clam digger in rubber boots, filthy canvas pants, and an old sweatshirt full of pipe ash holes, he rose from his wing chair and levered himself to his feet with his cane. Stains extended from his collar to his knees because at mealtimes he used himself as a plate. Like other monarchs, he may have confused menace with majesty and mistaken the wary looks of his subjects cowering in the wicker for devoted affection. He delivered his judgment not in words, but through his leaky blue eyes, which lingered on each one of us before coming to rest on my sister. I am going to die, he announced, and lifted Julia, his corgi, into his arms. The wicker groaned. Of course he was going to die at some point. He was 94 years old. Are you ill, my aunt asked. With his flushed cheeks and one bony hand gripping the cane as if it were a sword, he didn't look sick, just spiteful. Most years, he accused us all of a failure of cheerfulness and left it at that. No, there is nothing wrong with me. I'm going to die. That's all. I'm going to die on Saturday. But that's tomorrow, my sister said. I'm getting married here tomorrow. Well, you can go ahead and do whatever you want to, he said from the far side of the room, to where my fiance, Melissa, stood next to a row of windows framing the Atlantic Ocean. Who's that woman, he asked. Melissa raised her ink-black eyebrows and looked at me. Is that why there's a big hole in the ground, my sister said, tipping her tennis racket west? We'd all noticed the hole, three feet deep, a little bigger than a coffin on the way up from the dock, but no one had mentioned it until now in the hope that ignoring it would fill it in. It's not even in the graveyard, my sister added. Well, you're not putting me in the graveyard with all those people, my grandfather said to me for some reason. Those are our ancestors, and one of those people was your wife, Uncle Alden said. Is, is my wife. You're going to kill yourself on the day I get married, my sister said. She and my father had distinguished themselves as the only two people to stand up to my grandfather. My father lived in Oregon and hadn't been back to Maine. Of course, of course I'm not going to kill myself. You can't just decide to die, my sister said. Well, I can do whatever I damn well please. We all lowered our heads, except for my sister, who rolled her eyes. 
I'm getting in that hole on Saturday. And someone, my grandfather added, nodding at me, will be with dirt when I stop breathing. Why him, Uncle Alden said. Why does he get to bury you? Because he inherits the house. As of Saturday, the whole thing belongs to him. A great sigh seemed to rise from the floorboards and Uncle Alden's head flopped forward. I felt dizzy and saturated, like someone who just downed 11 seltzer and lemons at a sports bar to prove he could sit there and not drink. At one time, before my first trip to Cope in Tucson, I'd spent every summer here on the island crammed into this 18th century falling down Cape with my sister and grandparents and cousins, all people I loved, but also vaguely resented. I had always assumed that one of us, probably Uncle Alden, would own it someday, but not me. I lived in Tucson and had no money. Thanks, Jason. Uh, such a wonderful story, such a great beginning to the story. Um, the two characters who figure most often in the stories are the two characters who figure most in this story, um, John Jacobs Howland, the narrator, uh, and his grandfather, John Stoughton Howland. Say a little bit why these are the two figures who, who uh, loom largest in the volume. <clears throat> well, um, this is what I would call, I mean, I'm writing out of a, a sort of uh, what I think of as a mid to late century um, um, American realism. Um, uh, and, and in the short story form, uh, semi-autobiographical American realism, one of my uh, teachers was Tobias Wolf, uh, who was part of a sort of brat pack of, uh, you know, included Raymond Carver. And um, I then went on to be very influenced by Alice Munro um, and other writers. <clears throat> and uh, so this collection, in other words, is semi-autobiographical. And I was very close to my grandfather and very influenced by him and uh, probably would not have uh, developed an interest in writing if it were not for him. He himself was not a very good writer. <laughs> he was an English teacher, but he was uh, an incredible, in my view, and in my experience as a child, um, raconteur and mythmaker, and a mythmaker primarily of our family. Um, and uh, that's what I grew up with. I lived with my grandparents. My grandmother was an artist and my grandfather had been a teacher and um, and I lived with them in the summers and at other periods of time in Maine. They lived nearby us and we had a large family, uh, many cousins. And uh, my grandfather was a myth maker of how we were special is the way I think of it. That, our, that we were special as a family and that uh, there was a kind of specialness in our history. And, um, you know, there are many reasons that he was that way, but uh, probably um, I speculate, but it had a it had a huge influence on me and uh, for in, in both negative and positive ways. And the positive way, uh, one of the positive ways that it influenced me is that I had developed an interest interest in art and literature. Um, and I also felt that I had uh, that I was able to venture out and try that on my own. Um, and, you know, there are other negative ways that it influenced me as well. So. So it's clear from the passage that you read that that the house and the place, this part of Maine, is really critical for this family. Say a little bit more about that place and why it's important for them. Well, it's it's based on, you know, it's based on an island uh, where I grew up with my grandparents um, in the summers. 
And, um, you know, my grandparents lived in Bath, Maine, and they lived on the river in a house that uh, belonged to my uh, great grandparents. And then we had this, uh, it wasn't uh, the house that's described in the book, but it was a, a cabin down on this island. Um, um, and they would, and, you know, when they were retired, they would go down from their house in this, you know, old launch and uh, in Bath down the river and and then uh to their house and 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 uh there was a lot of history in that house and my ancestors uh on my grandfather's side many of them had been ship captains and um we had you know sea trunks and um old log books from the 1800s and um that combined with the sort of mythology that my grandfather created about our our family history um just created this sense in me of, uh, you know, without my realizing it, that I belong to some really rich, not rich in terms of, uh, well, you know, wealth, but uh, very, uh, you know, steeped in history and steeped in mythology. And the place, the physical place was, uh, was part of that, you know, boats, the ocean, um, you know, the fact that we had been involved in the sea for for you know many many generations a couple hundred years and and um so all that worked its way into me you know um and in growing up you know and it i didn't think of it the way i think of it now looking back and in, in the way i sort of critique that i think a little bit in the book in terms of uh you know privilege and and in terms of the history, uh, the the Puritan history that I come from, and how problematic that is, I didn't grow up with any of that consciousness. Um, ne neither did I grow up with a sense that this life that we were living was a function of wealth, uh, because be aside from the house, uh, we had no money. You know, um, um, not I mean, not no money. We were middle class, but um, and then as I grew up, all these people from Massachusetts started to buy all the real estate around us. And the whole place that I grew up with began to change and lose some of its sense of, uh, you know, um, distinct historical context and became a playground for people from New York and Boston. Um, and so some of this, you know, I, I can't help it. This book is driven in, in part by nostalgia for the sense of belonging that I grew up with and the fact that even going back there now, um, you can't. You can't go home again <laughs> because the place is no longer the same. So you, you've talked about the nostalgia. Another factor in the volume is that for a couple of the generations, the more recent generations, the West and California uh, have this importance as well. Why is that an important part of the story of the family? Um, well, I remember when I... Uh, uh, I was a young man, I think I was 24, and I got a Stegner Fellowship uh, at Stanford, which is a, a fellowship, uh, you know, where you get to go and write for two years and, and do nothing else. They give you money and you meet, I mean, it's just this incredible thing. And I basically had never been out West. And when I announced, I told my grandfather, um, you know, that I, you know, won this fellowship and that, you know, I was going out West. Uh, he sort of looked at me and said, uh, I'm not sure exactly how, but somehow I feel like I'm paying for this. <laughs> and and then the other thing he said, you know, he said, around Ohio, the earth tilts. 
He said, whatever's loose rolls down to California. And so there's this mythology where uh, uh, my grandfather's brother had tried to go out west um, and my, my great grandfather had, had uh, disowned him, you know. Um, one of my uncles, uh, no, not an uncle, one of my uh, grandfather's sons went out west. And I don't think he, uh, I've, I've never met the guy because he was sort of expunged from the family. I mean, there's this sort of, we've, my family's been in New England for 400 years and it's uh, incredibly tribal. And, um, you know, there's a sense of suspicion of, uh, you know, the West and anything foreign or outside. And uh, <laughs> so it's just the West fits into all that. In fact, they call me, my uncle calls me uh, Western Jason. When is Western Jason coming home? <laughs> and things have changed because my grandparents have passed away and, um, you know, even the, you know, the next generation has, you know, evolved a little bit, but my grandparents were beyond evolving. They were not going to evolve. So another thing that's sort of interesting about the volume is the way that um, the time sequence of the stories goes. So it, it jumps back and forth in time. So you begin in 2003, you go back to 1984, 81, then forward to 2014, and the volume ends in 1741. Say something about that that way of organizing the tales? Um, well, it begins in a way that a novel might. It begins at a certain period of time and then it moves back. Um, and it shows you a little bit how we move toward that time, which many novels do. Um, and then it moves in, uh, the stories move uh, in a linear way um, forward, uh, more or less, until we get to that final story, which takes place in the 1700s. And that story is based on a, on a real account um, of an ancestor who came from Scotland. I mean, my ancestors are not just English, they're Scottish and uh, a little bit of Irish and, and uh, they came for different reasons. A lot of the Scots came, my, a lot of, some of my Scottish ancestors came because they were prisoners um, of the English and they were sent on, uh, they were basically exiled to New England, uh, dropped off in Maine, good luck you know, <laughs> and they were dropped off right in the middle of the worst of the sort of fighting between the French and the English. But um, essentially, the, the reason I end with the story that I do is that, uh, you know, you've seen um, and, and you've seen this family, um, as I said, a snapshot of this family late 20th century. And then in one of the stories, you see log books and references to the 1800s. And so there's a constant sense throughout the story of living in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of, I'm trying to evoke a sense that they are still living in the past in the 20th century, in the early 21st century. And then the final story, I wanted to give people a direct look at where this all started. Um, and, you know, the Howlands, of course, started in Plymouth, but, uh, you know, many of my great great grandparents are, are, are came directly to Maine or moved directly to Maine or New Hampshire and uh, as the character in the final story did. And for them, um, I, I wanted to show that, you know, um, how, how hard it was, uh, for one thing, how, how unforgiving it, it was. And, you know, um, how in some ways, you know, it took enormous courage and fortitude uh, to survive that um, for, for many of them. At the same time, you know, I, I, I you know, there's, you know, <laughs> hold, holding two opposing ideas at the same time, 
they were um, they were conquerors. They were pushing other people out through disease. And uh, at the time, or shortly after the, the final story takes place, the Massachusetts government was uh, was paying people, um, you know, uh, paying people who lived in Maine um, about as much money as they could earn in half a year to produce one Native American scalp. And that's part of uh, the genocide that happened. And so in the final story, it's we don't get direct reference to that, um, but we do get a view of you know, of how, how, how brutal and, and tough it could be, you know. And for me, that's just all part of the larger story. Um, um, if that makes any sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. So um, you've told us a lot about the Howland family, but two of the stories don't focus on them. Um, Flood and Wintering Over are not about them. So why did you include that, those two stories in the volume? <laughs> Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, again, uh, I, I, I sort of refer back to my interest in the, um, link collection. And one of the things that a link collection can do in one of my favorite link collections that I didn't mention is in our time by Hemingway. Hemingway, of course, is, uh, problematic in various ways. And most of his work I have no interest in, but in our time, I think is a beautiful book. And, um, you know, in many books that focus on, Either a central character or even a central family, um, the the, the uh, link collections take the opportunity to to head away from those characters and and explore the periphery. And wintering over, for instance, um, <laughs> does not focus on the Howland family, but it actually takes place in the Howland house. <laughs> it's a it's a writer. Uh, uh, it focuses on a writer and his uh, and his uh, partner. And they uh, rent this Howland house. Uh, they're coming up from uh, New York, and uh, they rent the Howland house. And they, the story's trying to show how, in some ways, they um, come under the influence, um, if not directly, then indirectly, of not of the Howlands themselves, but of the culture that they represented, and in the world that they represented. And you know, I don't force that issue. I don't believe in anything you know, a paranormal, really. But, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to show how someone encounters the very specific cultural milieu that I'm describing in the Howlands if they're coming from outside, you know. And so they encounter the town, they live in the house, they've romanticized the Howlands New England uh, world from the outside, which is a big part of, uh, frankly, um, the self uh, mythologizing that I grew up with. Self mythologizing can't really happen unless you have a sense of uh, an audience. And I was the direct audience for my grandfather, but part of the implicit audience for that, and I think I referenced this throughout the book, is the fact is the idea that there are outsiders, right, who might who in your uh, who are looking in at your mythology, and you're trying to manage their perceptions of that and manage the narrative of that. And one of the stories that does that is, uh, you know, the last voyage of the uh, Alice B. Toklas. And uh, so that's, you know, some of what's going on in Wintering Over. In Flood, I, I wanted to look at a, an individual who was not from the Howland family, but who was also of the town and show just a little bit of uh, that world that they live in, but not through the narrower lens of being 
a Howland, which, you know, carries, as I said, a certain mythological weight. So we're coming to the end of our time, Jason. So uh, sure. one or two more questions. Um, what are you working on now? Um, I've just finished um, a, a memoir, actually, um, about uh, not about my father's family, but about my mother's family, um, who uh, comes from, you know, uh, a very different world. Uh, my mother's family um, are, uh, they're from upstate New York, and uh, she has many, many siblings, and they're, and they're all um, really from a blue collar background and uh, German history, um, immigrant history. And they're um, not just blue collar, uh, you know, a lot of them have spent time in prison, jail, and institutions. <laughs> and um, so it's really a, a, an, it's really a memoir and essays um, about growing up with my mother, um, who was uh, um, addicted and mentally ill, and, um, and how that, um, that relationship uh, influenced me. Um, probably more than my father's family, frankly, and um, how that relationship has transformed itself in itself and how it's it transformed, you know, me and uh, my, my relationship to the world and not, I mean, my um, preface makes it sound as if it must have been all negative. But in fact, the book focuses on um, overcoming a difficult things transformation and um, how in a way, uh, rescuing your parents, your most difficult parents is a, uh, an important mission um, for one's own psychological uh, transformation. Well, on that note of wisdom, Jason Brown, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I, you know, I, I love doing this. Obviously, it's talking about myself. So <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk about the book and uh, Thanks for the hard work you do in this series. Uh, I think it's just a really important job. Thank you. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Jason Brown, Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Oregon. He is the author of A Faithful But Melancholy Account of Several Barbarities Lately Committed. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>